So I'm going to read to you, first of all, this morning from 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And then I'm going to take the rest of the service and we're going to expound on this scripture. Um, and all that it implies. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. I'll read the, the entire verse to you. It says, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, if you have a King James, your, your version says, he who committeth sin. I have a new King James, and my new King James says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, if we could read Greek and understand Greek, we'd be at a little better advantage versus just what my new King James says here, he who sins is of the devil. Um, What that really implies is he who makes a practice of sin. Now, all sin is of the devil, right? But what that verse is saying is not saying, it's not saying every time you commit a sin, you lose your salvation and you got to get saved again. What it is saying is sin is evil. It's not consistent with God. It's of the devil. And he who makes a practice of sin of the devil. And John writes this, and he goes on and he says, For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. This is why Jesus was manifested, to destroy the works of the devil. The work of the devil in the beginning, when we see the beginning of the creation the beginning of the earth, of, of all that was in the earth, and the crowning jewel of God's creation on the sixth day was man. And here is man, and here is woman in the garden. And the serpent, the devil, comes, and he tempts Eve. I always tell people the devil only has the power of suggestion for you. The devil can't make you do anything. As a believer, I want you to hear this. The devil can't make you do anything. Oftentimes I talk to people and they say, well, you know, the devil made me, the devil, no, no, stop right there. The devil didn't make you do anything. I have no doubt he suggested to you and he persuaded you and he did everything within his power to talk you into it. But ultimately you made the decision to commit the sin. And when Eve made the decision to commit the sin, The world fell into sin. Creation fell into sin. The work of the devil was to undo, to destroy all that God had created. This is the work of the devil. This is what sin does. It it corrupts. It destroys. And John writes and he tells us Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So what I want to talk to you specifically about today is the warfare of our worship. I want you to understand that our worship 
is warfare. That's why I read to you as our call to worship Psalm 149. So the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. That, that is war. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Listen, when the Allied forces, my dad was a World War II vet. When the Allied forces landed in Normandy in 1944, they didn't land there to give candy and flowers to the Nazis and tell them what great guys they were. They landed on that beach. They spilled their blood. They fought their way all the, all the way from the beaches of Normandy to Berlin. And they did that to destroy the Nazi war machine and that whole system because they were the enemy. So I don't want you to, I want you to be really clear. When the Bible talks about warfare, it's talking about doing something very specific. When we talk about our worship and our worship being warfare, our worship does something very specific. It does a lot of things. And so we want to we look at this aspect today of our worship. And hopefully from this, and we're going to read a lot of scripture today, and hopefully from this, you're going to see why it is important. Listen to me, church, why it's important for you to not forsake assembling together. Why it's important for you to understand why we come to this place week after week. Why saints all over the world gather, assemble together week after week. Whether they understand it or not, there is a reason why the Bible commands it. There is a reason why this has been a, this has been ingrained in the people of God. Because this is, this is part of our worship. And it's part of our warfare. This is why Jesus came to this earth and was manifest. He came here to destroy the works of the devil. Now, we need to understand that the devil is already defeated, but the process of destroying his work is the process of establishing the victory that has already been won. So the process of driving out the enemy and building again from the destruction that he has caused is all part of destroying the work of the devil. So let's go back to our picture of the invasion of, of Europe by the Allied forces to drive out the Nazis and rebuild Europe from the destruction of war. The victory was long won while the good guys were still destroying the works of the wicked. So we're in a war and we are called to be good soldiers. And the warfare we wage and the enemy we engage is much more deadly than any earthly conflict or any earthly foe that we could face. We get scared when we see videos of ISIS cutting the heads off of Christians and we wonder if Islam is going to take over the world and you've got people losing their minds because they're, they're, they've given them, themselves over to fear of what may or what could happen. And when now that's okay for the world to do because they don't know any different, but that's not okay for believers to do. That's not okay for a child of God who is supposed to know what the word of God says. That's not okay for you to do. I'm going to just tell you that right now. If you're doing that, stop it. That's silliness. God has already won our victory. 
whether you believe it or not, whether you can see it or not, the gospel is working, the kingdom is being established, and God will not fail. He will do what he has promised to do. And so the victory is already won, but there is still much work to be done. So we're in a war and we're called to be good soldiers. And the warfare we wage and the enemy that we are engaged with is truly deadly. I mean, men are fighting wars right now. We're in the midst. Our nation is fighting a war right now. And the, the men and the women that are fighting this war can really lose their physical lives in this earthly conflict. But the warfare that we're engaged in is much more serious and much more deadly because the warfare we are engaged in will determine, it will seal the fate, the eternal spiritual fate of countless people on planet earth. That's the warfare you're engaged in. That's the warfare we are engaged in. And we need to be good soldiers waging a good warfare. So to fight a good fight and to be a good soldier, we need to know where, where we are in this war. So let's turn in our Bibles over to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. And let's go to the last chapter of Malachi. Let's go to Malachi chapter 4. We're going to start there, and then we're going to move over to the New Testament, and we're going to read... Malachi chapter 4, then we're going to read the words of Jesus from Matthew 16 and Matthew 17, and it's going to help us see where we are in this war. If you're fighting a battle and you think you're in one place and you're supposed to be doing one thing, but the reality is you're, you're in another place and you're supposed to be doing a whole other thing, you know it can really affect how, how, how effective your warfare is. If you're, if you're standing there firing your gun very efficiently, but you got it pointed to the wrong, the wrong direction and you're shooting at the good guys, that's not good. Or you're shooting at nobody while the war is waging around you, that's not good either. So let's look at Malachi chapter 4. Remember, why was the Son of God manifested? To destroy the works of the devil. Now here is the last prophecy of the Old Testament. After Malachi prophesies, there is 400 years between the, the prophecy of Malachi and the, the coming of Jesus. Specifically, before Jesus came, John the Baptist showed up on the scene and he preceded Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. And, and actually, the, the these four chapters of Malachi have a lot to say. We're not going to do a study on the book of Malachi, but I'm going to read to you the last chapter. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves, and you shall trample the wicked 
for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Then the canon of the Old Testament scripture was closed and there was no prophetic word from God for 400 years until John the Baptist came. And Jesus in Matthew 11 calls John the Baptist the greatest of all the prophets born of woman. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets that would prophesy the coming of the Messiah. So let's leave Matthew chapter, I mean, Malachi chapter four, and let's go to Matthew and let's go to chapter 16. Malachi chapter, I mean, Matthew chapter 16. And let's begin reading in verse 13. Now, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So Passover and Easter coincide with one another. Passover is always celebrated on the 15th of Nisan. Nisan is the, uh, the, the Hebrew name, the, the, the Jewish name for the month of their calendar that they celebrate Passover. It's not a car, it's a month, Nisan. And it's the 15th day. And since the Jews operate under a lunar calendar, they only have 30 days in their month. So it's day 15 in the month, Nisan. The Passover is always celebrated at the time of the full moon. Now, why is Easter always on Sunday if Easter commemorates the resurrection of Jesus? And Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread and he was raised on first fruits. We know Jesus was raised on a Sunday because first fruits is always, is always celebrated on a Sunday. Well, Jesus, we know, was resurrected on a Sunday. And so the church wanted Easter to be celebrated on a Sunday in commemorance of his resurrection So what they did was they made Easter be the Sunday following the full moon after March 21st, on or after March 21st. Why March 21st? Because that's the spring equinox, because that's all tied to this lunar calendar. That's when Passover was. And so the church made Easter very close. They made it go with Passover, but we wanted Easter to be a Sunday because that's the day that Jesus was resurrected. And so now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is going to be the Passover. He's going to fulfill this feast. And so he's asking his disciples, we'll pick it up in verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am, that I, the son of man am? So they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Be blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't just a lucky guess. Jesus said, divine revelation has come to you from the Father, and the Father, my Father, has revealed to you who I am. Listen, church, that same revelation has to come to you and to me. For you to really know who Jesus is, you have got to receive divine revelation so that the eyes of your heart and the eyes of your understanding would be opened up from blindness, and you would truly see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus goes on, he says, and I also say that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he did a very funny thing. He commanded his disciples to tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time, he began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, and then Peter says, God forbid, and Jesus rebukes Peter. Now, for time's sake, we're going we're gonna to skip down to chapter 17. It says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So here is Jesus with Peter, James, and John. Peter and the three disciples that he was closest to. He took these three disciples with him up on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says that he was transfigured before them. Jesus was. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. We would do good to heed that, that same voice and that same warning. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. That was the end of Peter's great idea. They were fearful. They were on the ground shaking at the voice that had just come out of heaven and had told them, commanded them, hear my son. And Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. When he had lifted up and when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Listen closely. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Do you know if you go to it, we do this every so often. We haven't done it in a couple of years, but usually every other year or so I'll do a Passover Seder and we'll do the Passover Seder and we will uh, do it as you would traditionally do it, a Jewish Passover. 
Seder, but we do it and we teach how the symbolism of the Seder is revealing Christ to us. It's, it's just amazing. You, you go through a Passover Seder and you see the symbolism of Christ and you wonder how in the world can the Jews not see this? Well, they can't see it because Paul tells us God has blinded their eyes. And so one of the interesting things they do at a Passover Seder is they set the table and they leave a place set, an empty place set. Guess who it's set for? It's set for Elijah. So you set the table and you have an empty place setting. It stays empty all night long and it's symbolic of Elijah who is to come because they know the prophecy of Malachi that before the Messiah comes, God will send Elijah. So when Elijah shows up, guess what the Jews understand? The Messiah is soon to follow. So every year at the Passover, they set a place for Elijah. And guess what? Elijah still has not come to their Passover Seder. And you know why? Jesus tells us why right here. Verse 11, and Jesus answered. They said, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, listen, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come all ready and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished likewise the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of john the baptist we don't have time but we could read matthew 11 and jesus says the same thing there he is if you can receive this john the baptist is elijah now he wasn't elijah reincarnated he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, just as was prophesied, and he prepared the way for the Messiah to come, just as Malachi had said. How do we know John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come? Because Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the living God, just told us who John the Baptist is. Yet we have millions of Christians and millions of Jews still waiting for Elijah to come, and Jesus says, He's already come. So if you're still waiting for Elijah, let me just help you out right now. Stop waiting. According to Jesus Christ, and I think he's a pretty reliable source, he's already come. Now, what does that tell us then? Now, remember, to fight a good fight and to be a good soldier, one must know where he is in the war. If Elijah has already come, then this should inform us as to where we are in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this war that we are waging. And that's very important because if we don't know where we are, we're not going to wage a very effective warfare. So Jesus clarifies the work and he clarifies the time of the work in these verses in Matthew 16 and 17. So in Matthew 16, Jesus promises that he will build his church and in Matthew 17, Jesus reveals that the time is now. Elijah has already come. John the Baptist was sent before, and he called the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers. Remember, that's what Malachi said John, that Elijah would do. He'd turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. This is exactly what John the Baptist did. This is the kingdom call to repent. 
for the children of God to return to the truth of the fathers and for those spiritual fathers of that day to turn their hearts to their spiritual children and point them to God and to his Christ. That's not what the spiritual fathers of John's day did. And that's why he called them serpents and brood of vipers. That's why Jesus was merciless with them. You read Matthew 23 and you'll see who Jesus considered these spiritual fathers to be. They were not doing what they were meant to do. So this is the gospel work of renewing hearts by the power of God. Christ does not destroy the works of the devil apart from building his church. The ongoing work of Christ building his church is the ongoing work of Christ destroying the works of the devil. We're living in the days of Jesus fulfilling his promise to build his church. His kingdom is growing and advancing. We saw that in, in Isaiah. When Isaiah prophesied 750 years before the birth of Christ, it says, when that baby is born, when that Christ comes, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. No end of what? No end of its increase. There are a lot of Christians who don't believe that today. A lot of Christians believe there will be an end and a decrease of his kingdom. Then it's going to all pick up again. That's not what the Bible says. A lot of people are still waiting for Elijah to come. Jesus said he's already come. Stop waiting. Stop waiting for something to happen. The time is now. It's happening right now. We need to join the war. We need to, to, to realize whose side we're on, and we need to point our weapons in the right direction, and we need to get busy and start waging a good warfare. So this is the gospel work. This is the work of the gospel to destroy the work of the devil. We're living in the days when Jesus is fulfilling his promise to build his church. His kingdom is growing. It's advancing. He's given his church authority now. He's given the command to go and to tell the world his good news now. Remember, he says, don't tell anyone I am the Christ. Now, he says, go and tell the world that I am the Christ. <coughs> tell them the good news. The son of righteousness. This is the term that Malachi uses in chapter 4. S-U-N. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Who is that S-U-N? It is the S-O-N. The son of righteousness speaks of the dawning of a new day. A new light has come. A new day has come. And with the rising of a new day, the son of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. We are to go out and to grow fat like stall-fed calves. This is not a picture of decrease in darkness, but a picture of increase in light. Christ has already won the victory. The work is hard and it may be long, but we have every reason to be filled with hope and assurance and rejoicing. Amen, church? So the cross is God's secret weapon to destroy the works of the devil and to make all things new. Paul writes in his letter in 1 Corinthians 1, 8, that had the rulers of this world known the wisdom of God in the cross, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The cross is not only the death of Jesus, but is also the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, 
and the ascension to glory and all authority. It is the ascension of Jesus to glory and to all authority. So when Jesus is getting ready to ascend to the Father, what does he tell the church? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Jesus knew the authority that had been given to him. He was crucified and buried. He was accepted to the Father. His blood made atonement. Now he tells us to go, and he tells us how to go. And so as a result of the cross, now is the time. Jesus is building his church now. The church has been given authority in Christ now. And Jesus has commanded his church to tell the world and to subdue the nations now. Here's how Jesus presented it to his disciples, what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to start reading in verse 17, and I want you to see something. Verse 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So even then, as it is now, in the presence of the risen Lord, some doubted, while others worship, all the while Jesus is giving his church the orders for war. And this happens weekly. It happens here at Christ Fellowship. It happens in the church at large, everywhere. Here we are gathered in the presence of Jesus, and some are doubting, and some are worshiping, and all the while God is issuing the order for us to go to war. But what are we doing? It's the question we all have to answer. And as your pastor or as an under-shepherd, I call you from your doubt and I command you to take up your worship and your warfare like a good soldier in Christ. Now, if you were going to go to war and you were fixing to be shipped over somewhere where they were shooting real bullets and they had real knives, and they were really going to kill you if they got their hands on you. And they ship you to this place, and they're going to train you and equip you to go fight this war. And I mean, you're going to the front lines. What would you feel if your drill sergeant and your commanders said, hey, guys, listen, we're pretty relaxed here. And you guys want to show up for training, that's fine. If you guys don't want to show up for training, that's fine, too. Just come when you can. Uh, if you do come, you know, the equipment's over there. Just grab whatever looks good to you, whatever you feel comfortable with. And if you get tired, you know, while you're out on the training ground, it's okay. Just, you know, grab a tree somewhere, you know, it's okay. We're pretty laid back here. Just know that we love you. God loves you. And uh, it's going to all be okay in the end. How would you feel about being shipped off to the front line? And that was your training. You wouldn't feel very good about it, would you? You wouldn't. Think, uh, aren't you sending me somewhere where they're going to kill me? They're going to try to kill me, right? Yeah, yeah. Shouldn't you be teaching me how to 
Well, yeah, we should be. But you know, we don't want to make anyone feel bad. We don't want to inconvenience anybody. You, you see where I'm going with this? This is kind of where we've come to in the church. And we've come to this because we've really lost the reality that we're involved in a war. But there is a real spiritual battle taking place. And there are real lives at stake. They're all around us. The church is being built and Jesus is head over his body. Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has commanded his church to go in his authority and make disciples of the nations, to baptize them and to teach them all that he has commanded. The gospel preached is working and changing the world to manifest the victory of Christ. An army called to war is an army assembled. We have been called to assemble. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but, exhort, but exhorting one another in so much more as you see the day approaching. A soldier that goes AWOL, you know what that means? Absent without leave. A soldier that goes AWOL has not considered his fellow warriors. He has not considered his commander. He has considered himself. And we are called to consider our Lord and one another and so not forsake assembling together. And when we assemble, we assemble for worship and we assemble for war. We have been given powerful spiritual weapons to conduct our worship and our warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 says that we've been given spiritual weaponry to pull down and to destroy strongholds. <laughs> Ephesians 3, 10 says that it's been given to us to make known to principalities the manifold wisdom of God, to bear witness to them of God's wisdom and of God's victory in Christ. We read Psalm 149 as our call to worship. Psalm 149 says it's been given to the saints to execute on them the written judgment. So we must come to understand the importance of God's command for his saints to assemble. And we must understand that we all that, that, that all we do in our assembly from the call to worship to the closing prayer and beyond is not only worship, but it is warfare. And we must also understand that our worship and our warfare does not stop when we leave the building, but it continues wherever we go and in whatever we do. We assemble for worship to give glory the glory that's due his name. We assemble for war to destroy the works of darkness and establish his kingdom. We assemble for a witness and consideration of one another and to make known his wisdom to principalities and to the world around us. We assemble for joy because we are most strong. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
We are most strong and God is most glorified when we are most joyful. To corporately worship on Sunday is to corporately conduct spiritual warfare by pulling down strongholds in our minds and in heavenly places. It is making known God's wisdom and God's victory in Christ. And not least, it is to consider and to encourage and strengthen one another in his joy as we worship and as we war for his glory. To assemble together is to conduct the warfare committed to us by Christ, to be equipped to continue the work that is before us and to give witness to his glory and to know his joy that is our strength. Paul writes this in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. I want you to notice the language of warfare here. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Our warfare involves not only you and Jesus, but it involves all of us. It is for all of us, for all the saints. So we are his saints, and he has committed to us our worship and our warfare. And the psalmist declares, this honor, this honor have all the saints. Each Sunday, know that our call to worship is a call to war and a call to glorify the name of Christ and proclaim his kingdom and his victory to all, both friend and foe alike. This is why the Son of God was manifested. This is why he took up the cross it is our privilege by his grace to join him in worship and in warfare and see the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let us hear and let us heed the call and let us joyfully join our captain and all his host and make known his name in all his fame and subdue the nations for his glory. Amen. So I challenge you to be a good soldier, to wage a good warfare, and to know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And when you are most joyful, he is most glorified, 
and our worship and our warfare is most effective. Let us all stand and let us pray. Father, it's our privilege to come and assemble in this place and worship you. And it is the honor that you've given to us to execute judgment, the written judgment on your enemies. Lord, the way that you have given to us to subdue our enemies is through the power of the gospel. Lord, the way we destroy our enemies is to make our enemy our brother. Lord, the gospel would be the power of God, the salvation that would break hard hearts, that would wash away sin, that would raise the dead, heal the blind, heal the deaf, that they would see and know and hear the glorious gospel of Christ, that they would be raised out of death and destruction and be raised to new life as new creations. This is the warfare you've given to us. Those that will not be raised... The same gospel that is their salvation is the same gospel that is their destruction. And it is all to and for your glory. Lord, do a work in our hearts by your spirit. Father, do not allow us to hear this word and be discouraged, but open our ears, open our minds and our hearts and encourage us and reveal to us that you have given us this honor. Not an obligation that is a burden, but an honor that is a privilege and a joy that is our strength. Work in our hearts by your spirit and be glorified in each of us. And so be glorified in your church. We pray in the name that is above all names. We pray in the matchless name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.